What up, Brad fans? I uh, got a great, great conversation slash interview episode uh, talking all about our favorite, our favorite topic on this show, parasites. Uh, this episode, I was joined by Dr. Constance Finney, who I met while I was doing my PhD work at the University of Calgary. So she's originally from Europe, has ties to the UK and France did uh, studies at Imperial College London, University of Edinburgh, came over to Canada, uh, worked at the University of Toronto, and now is a professor at the U of C's Biological Science Department. Um, and so her career has always focused on infectious diseases. She is an infectious disease immunologist, um, and she looks at host parasite interactions. So and we'll get into this, so you'll you'll learn all about it. But basically, how does the body deal with multiple infections at the same time? How does that all interact? Um, she is incredibly smart, really funny. I enjoyed talking with her a lot. Um, it was nice just to catch up. But also, you know, I studied some of this stuff too and was blown away by some of the things that she was saying. So if you're interested in the immune system, parasites in general, all of that kind of great stuff, um, stay tuned. It's a great conversation. Uh, be warned, gets a little gets a little icky when she talks about her, her tapeworm experience, but it's all good. It was so much fun to talk to her, and it's a really informative, um, fun conversation that I think you all will enjoy. So my my sincerest thanks to Constance for taking the time to do this. Um, remember, uh, follow us, follow the show on Twitter, uh, at too, too for you. That's also the Instagram handle. Reach out, um, comment if you like, if you didn't like, if there's something you wanna hear, um, and rate, subscribe, follow us on any platform you're getting your podcast, that really helps. And that is it. Uh, music from the Freak Motif, and then on to my discussion with Dr. Constance Finney. We're citizens now. You got citizenship. Yeah. Yeah, we okay. got citizenship a year and a bit ago. Congratulations. So, Welcome to the team. Thank you. Now I have three, so I can... You... I'm, I'm just piling them up. Right. And so you, but you, so you didn't have to get rid of any other passports? No, not yet. Wow. wow. Amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm seeing how many I can add up together. And then I think the problem is once you get one that you got when you weren't born, you mm -hmm. have to give that up if you get another one. Right. So, like, okay. if I went to the U.S., they'd probably let me have the ones I was whenever I get I was born. But now they right. can say, "No, you got a ditch. You can't have like keep going to countries and accumulating <laughs> passports, which would be cool." But yeah, uh, yeah no, they they won't let us do that. You, you know, have the briefcase like the spies in the movie, just like what passport well, do I need? We kind of do because the girls and I and James have a little pouch with eleven passports in it, <laughs> and we go around the world with the pouch because we need different ones for different countries so yeah you feel like just telling a border agent here you go take your pick yeah. uh pick, pick out the one you need yeah uh, it's yeah. all good so it is quite funny but now we became yeah we became citizens which is kind of cool and uh 
a nice thing about Canada, actually, that it's relatively simple. So Adina became a citizen too. Okay, right. And she's originally from Hungary. So Yeah, and she just moved to Norway. Oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so it's nice that she has that option now and she kind of has a kind of link to Canada. I think it does Canada a lot of good, actually, to have people want to come back. Yeah. Well, yeah, that could come back. Um, my wife, uh, she's been, she came to Germany like a year before me. So she's yeah. got one more year on me. Um, and she was looking at doing permanent residence here. Yeah. Just because, hey, then the, the door is open. You yes. know, like if a job comes up, you can always come back yeah. or something like that. But uh, yeah, I've always, I was hoping that the UK would have some kind of, um, you know, Commonwealth agreement or something like this, because I've looked at a couple of positions in the UK and it's just like, no, good luck. You do if you're young, not that you're old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm out of that range. Uh, I'm but out, I think of, that you're out range. of the range, right? But uh, yeah, I think they have a two year thing if you're if you're a young traveler and they want people to mix. But otherwise, yeah, they don't care. And yeah. I'm guessing with Brexit now anyway, they don't want any of you foreigners. So you might just not go with that yeah i don't know we'll see we'll see we'll see what comes up there was a couple things in cambridge that looked kind of nice but uh anyway uh we won't get into the brexit thing i do <laughs> no <laughs> i do want to start i guess um because we met uh in the parasitology studying parasitology or labs were you know associated um but i'm always curious because you know parasites is a bit weird when did it start for you? When you started university, did you kind of know that that was a direction you wanted to go? Or was there a moment during university where you're like, oh, hey, this is gross, but kind of <laughs> kind of interesting? Um, so, I mean, I've always been interested in epidemics in general. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. just things that are gross and take over. Um, but I guess at university, so in the UK, university is slightly different than in Canada, mm -hmm. um, and it's a lot more structured. So we don't get as much choice as you. Um, so in the first year, you just have to do everything. So I had to do ecology, I had to do all organisms, and I had to do a bunch of stuff. Um, and I, I think I was already interested in parasites at that stage. I mean, I liked bacteria and I liked viruses too, like anything that was infectious and, and caused horrendous damage was of interest to me <laughs> um but i think the lectures i had in my first year really expanding on what parasitism was and what parasites were i learned about so the nematodes the roundworms that i study now and i study for my phd i really learned about during my undergrad um i had a couple of the friends i had at university were interested in the same things as me as well so that kind of helps um and then i guess i only looked really the phds i looked for were based on parasite stuff and i think it's because also parasites are linked to tropical disease mm -hmm. and i was always interested in tropical medicine um i guess because there's a history of france and the uk with all the kind of imperialism and that kind of thing but so there has been a lot of historical writing about you know, malaria and how it affects mm -hmm. people that went over there or horrible plagues when you go to travel and all these kinds of things historically so i've, I've always kind of had that interest i don't think there was a moment where i went parasites aha that's it that's me yeah um but I've always been interested in how the immune system works. And I think the fact that 
we can't really get at parasites or we haven't been able to very well is probably what's kind of steered me towards them because mm -hmm. you know we have a bunch of vaccines and we have a bunch of drugs against bacteria and viruses and they work more or less well um but parasites are kind of that elusive one where we have some things but they seem pretty good at either getting around them or just not behaving the way they should behave mm -hmm. um, so i think that's more kind of where it came from yeah and i mean that's we can get into some of the nuts and bolts, I guess, here now, because it's like, yeah, you know, people have heard of vaccines and antibiotics and stuff like this. But what like, what is it about parasites, then, that is so difficult, and kind of, you know, they're, they're make up the neglected tropical, tropical mm -hmm. diseases and stuff. But it just it kind of seems counterintuitive, because they're so they can be big, right? Not all of them are large. But when yep. you think of parasites, you think of these worms, and you think like, why doesn't the immune system handle this? Like there's got to be a way yeah. to deal with this thing because it's so large or, you know. Yeah. So first I'll start by saying that the problem with parasites is that the word is so big, right? So we have parasites that are very, very big, like the giant worms that everybody finds gross and we've seen come out of multiple orifices on the internet and yeah, gross yeah. versus, you know, teeny tiny things that live inside cells like bacteria, the same kind of size. So I work on those two. I work on toxoplasma, which is teeny tiny. Right. Um, so you've got a massive range. So we've put it all in one group and said, oh, these are all parasites. And, and they are, but for your immune system, like they're totally different things it's got to deal with. Like the teeny tiny things it's going to deal with probably like it's going to deal with bacteria um, in a similar kind of way. It's going to try and attack them. They tend to um, reproduce really quickly. So your immune system is trying to kind of get at it and make sure it doesn't reproduce. So there's a lot of, usually in those kinds of situations, there's a lot of damage. Your immune system is just trying to kill, 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 mm -hmm. and get that done. Um, so those responses, usually the big difference between bacteria and viruses and parasites that are all small is that the parasites look more like us. So the bacteria and the viruses, you kind of got a chance because you're like, oh, that bacteria looks so different. I can, mm -hmm. I can recognize that. But the parasite is a cell that is very much like a mammalian cell. And so it's like it's got some things that look like us and some things that look slightly different, but it's harder for your immune system to be able to pick it out. And mm -hmm. parasites are nice and clever. So they figured out a whole bunch of ways of hiding and finding places where your immune system can't go or your immune system can't see them. Um, so it's pretty good. They're pretty good at doing that. And then you have the really big ones where you think, okay, even I can see these guys. So my immune system should be able to figure this one out. Um, and I always say to people, you know, if you think that a cell is the size of a human, so an immune cell would be the size of us, a worm for that immune cell would be about 50K. Mm -hmm. So 50 kilometers long, right? So, right. so it, does, it probably does see it just might be a little overwhelmed <laughs> and it will see it and go, okay, this thing is massive. Um, first, I'm going to need some reinforcements for sure. Mm -hmm. Not going to mm -hmm. handle this on my own, but also usually worms and some of the big parasites, they don't reproduce, right? So you don't get one worm in um, a person and then they'll suddenly become two worms and three worms. They don't do that. Right. They, they right. lay eggs, right? So as an immune system, you don't have to worry about, suddenly this worm explosion and you're going to explode because you have too many worms. 
Right. So what your immune system's trying to do with this giant thing that's in there is try and stop it from causing any damage. Mm -hmm. So sometimes immobilizing it, stopping it from moving, it might manage to squiggle out and, and get out, but what you want to do is just limit the damage there because you've got blood vessels and you've got all kinds of things in there and you just don't want that worm being able to cause more damage. So usually then the immune system, instead of focusing on killing it, which causes a lot of damage, will focus on just trying to heal the wounds that are caused. So it's kind of more like a nanny running after this worm that's causing a whole load of damage and it's like, just stop moving. Um, and trying to patch things up and trying to get it done. Um, and so, you know, it's what, what happens is there's a balance of, you know, what's more important? Is it more important to kill this thing or is it more important to make sure that I don't die because this thing is punching holes everywhere it's going mm -hmm. and my body's not supposed to have these holes and you've got to clean them up. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of the difficulty of parasites is we lump them all in together, but actually from the point of view of the immune system, I would say that they're very different just based on size and what they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess it makes, yeah, you put it this way, the size issue, it's like containment is kind of yeah. the, the best, the best scenario. And then the smaller ones are kind of uh, maybe a bit more akin to bacteria or something yeah. like this. In yeah, terms and, of that they reproduce, they multiply and things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And they can spread around. So you want to limit their spread. So you really want to hunt down every last one of those, because if you don't, they can go and hide. So mm -hmm. Toxoplasma that I work on, it's very clever. It starts off in the intestine because you eat it, mm -hmm. um, but then it heads straight to the brain and to the muscle because mm -hmm. there's less of your immune system in the brain and in the muscle, it kind of hides in this, what we call a cyst, which is essentially, it makes a little protective wall around itself. Mm -hmm. And then it's very hard for the immune system to get at it. Right. Um, but when it's in the gut, it's quite vulnerable to the immune system. So it does what it needs to do very quickly and then shoots out of there to, to get to where it can hang out for a much longer time. And this is kind of, you know, people have probably heard of malaria too. And mm -hmm. malaria like hides within blood cells, does it? Yeah. So it hides within blood cells. And then essentially what it does is um, it when it needs to get into another blood cell, it's very, very, very quick. We're talking seconds. It doesn't last very long in the blood by itself because in the blood outside of those red blood cells, your immune system is working full kind of capacity because... If anything gets in your blood, it can get anywhere. So right. the blood is not usually a good place to be for a parasite, um, except that it has so much food in there. There's excellent nutrients for your parasite. So a lot of them want to be in there, but they need to be really good at hiding. Mm -hmm. So malaria hides inside cells and then only makes those cells burst and jumps into another cell very, very quickly. There's a worm called a schistosome right. that can live inside the blood for I mean, some people have measured about 40 years. I don't know if that's the maximum or if that's just what we measured. Yeah. Um, but you know, Either because... way, that's incredibly long. <laughs> yeah. And your blood is full of immune cells. So these worms are able to live in there quite happily. They feed on the best stuff because your blood is full of the best stuff. Mm -hmm. But they're very cl clever. They stick um, uh, molecules, our own molecules, onto themselves to pretend to the immune system. When the immune system looks at the worms, they're like, oh, no, all those molecules are, are from you, so it's all good. But the worms have basically stuck them on like Velcro um, and are hiding behind those. Yeah, that one's, that's crazy. It's like just yeah. plucking things out yeah. of the bloodstream, <laughs> sticking it to itself to like, yeah. like a 
camouflage blanket. Exactly. And so there's a whole bunch of them that are able to do that. Um, But it's kind of, it's always this, so there's a choice. Um, Either you live where the immune system is and you need to be very good at hiding or you find a spot where the immune system can't find you. Mm -hmm. These are kind of the two, the two strategies. Yeah. I was really struck by something you said just earlier that the parasite cells actually more resemble our own compared to to bacteria or viruses, something Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, that's, it sounds crazy, but I mean, you know, (laughs) they are animals, I guess. Um, So so they are animals and and most of their very basal processes, you know, how, how the cell, um, really survives is very similar and then obviously there are some very different mechanisms as well how they eat how they do various things is different how they invade other cells is different but all the very basic things they need to run are very similar to us and so Mm -hmm. that actually makes making drugs against them super difficult because you're trying to target something that they have that's not going to hit us because if you kill all the parasites but you also kill the person or the animal, <laughs> you've got a problem. So, um, so you've got to try and find something that the parasite has that we don't have. Hmm. Um, and that, that is taking time and effort by a huge number of scientists around the world to be able to refine um, the science to try and find those targets and try to use them. Right. And so that's like, would, would another strategy then... I don't know. I don't know how feasible this is. I'm just kind of thinking on the fly mm-hmm. here. But so if you have the problem where our cells are so similar, so if you design a drug to kill a parasite cell, it might also kill the host cell. Mm-hmm. Um, at least for the ones that are sort of evading the immune system, has anyone ever looked at like a way of trying to like remove their cloaking device or something like this? Would that be um, possible? Yeah. So you could try and go in but again because their cloaking device sometimes is made up of our cells you're mm-hmm. then going to chop those things off everybody else mm-hmm. right. and sometimes right. they use um so i'm going to try and not get too technical but all <laughs> our cells have some molecule a particular molecule on them called mhc Uh, Well, HLA and anyway, it doesn't matter what it's called. I'm not going to get jargon in here. They have a molecule on top of them so that when your immune cells go around and they Mm -hmm. see that molecule, they say, check, this is a molecule that belongs to Brad. I know it's Brad. We're good. Right. And then it goes on and checks all the other cells. And so a cell that doesn't have one of those, the immune system will say, ha, this isn't Brad done. Um, And so you would think that it would get parasites that way. But these schistosome worms are very good when they use their Velcro to Velcro that particular molecule onto them. Mm-hmm. So if you try to do anything to that one, you could try and maybe cleave it off, for example. But trying to get something that can cut molecules off very precisely mm-hmm. is hard. To get a pair of scissors that is specific to that molecule on right. that parasite is super difficult. And right. We have a whole bunch of... Um, molecules that 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 are scissors that can go and cut things off but they're not very they're not very picky like they can pick and say oh this is a group of molecules that's how i i cut them off but it's not going to say oh yeah i've got to pick those particular ones right Um, yeah it's it's hard to make scissors that are so specific that you're going to be able to go in and do that right 
wow, it's really, I mean, it's insidious, right? Like it's so. Oh, that, that, I mean, the more you get into the amazing art of what parasites can do to live in us for so long, uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 And this comes like, you know, I mean, obviously this is must come from a, a relationship of millions of years of evolution you know the us are the immune system trying to outsmart it and then it yes. coming up with something else and i think this is also maybe this comes down to kind of the containment thing is that from an mm -hmm. evolutionary standpoint investing a whole lot of effort into this fight against parasites when you know that it's just going to like kind of find a way around it maybe the maybe the overall cost benefit analysis is to just hey let's just deal with a certain amount of parasites all the time. We know we're going to get them. We're dirty creatures. You know, we get yeah. infections. It's just going to happen. Is that well, usually what happens is there is, so everything has an energy cost to start with. So you having lots of immune cells working really hard is an energy cost and the parasite trying to hide and do all of this is a high energy cost as well. And so both sides only have so much energy. Both sides only have like, our immune army is only so big and can only do so much. And, and same goes with the parasites. Like it's only got so many skills that it can use. Um, but it's usually called an arms race. So every time the parasite does something, the immune system gets around it. And then we just keep going and going and mm -hmm. going. And eventually when you have those kinds of relationships, some kind of equilibrium happens whereby, yeah, some people will get infected, but it won't be great, but it won't be terrible and and the problem is you know when we look at human infections and let's say we look at malaria we think oh my goodness there's so many deaths it's terrible it is but compared to the actual number of people who get malaria the number of deaths is relatively small right we're not talking a 90 percent death rate mm -hmm. at all right we're talking something much much smaller um, and I don't want to say the numbers because I can't remember them offhand because I haven't right. worked on malaria in a while. <laughs> but, um, you know, the percentages are far, far smaller. And right. they're targeted. They're really in populations that, are, that have immature immune systems. So usually young children where their immune system hasn't had time to develop a good response. Mm -hmm. um, pregnant women is another one because during pregnancy, your immune system's trying to deal with the fact that there's something that isn't you inside there. So it's kind of toned down. Um, and so that's when a lot of parasites get, get a break and manage to get in there. Um, and then usually if you've got something else that's causing your immune system to break down. So a common one is, um, you know, a disease like HIV um, mm -hmm. because it, it attacks your immune system. And so even if your immune system had a good handle on the parasites that you had, if it's being depleted by things like HIV, then it's hard to maintain the, that kind of control. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess this kind of, you know, leads a little bit to what you work on specifically, because your research is looking at polyparasism, right? So like co-infections. Yes. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is sort of the, um, you know, parasites. One of the reasons I think they're the neglected diseases, right, is because they don't necessarily kill a lot of people they sort of your body maintains this sort of stance but it makes people really kind of sick and less yeah. active and morbid i guess is, is the word morbidity versus mortality but uh once you start getting multiple infections going on you mentioned hiv then the situation gets a little dicey and uh yeah uh, so 
so I tend to think of a your immune system as kind of this. Um, it's kind of a system that we always assumed. We always assume as scientists that it's set at zero, and mm. that we can pull it in different directions. But the the reality is nobody's immune system is at zero, right? If you had a cold last week, your immune system was pushed in one direction. Mm-hmm. I've had multiple parasitic infections. I have toxoplasma. I've had a tapeworm. Um, I've had multiple viruses. I've had multiple bacterial infections. And so each one of those has tweaked my immune system in a way that is different to you. Right. And toxoplasma is chronic, so I still have it. So it's still tweaking my immune system. And yet a lot of the research we do in science, because of the complexity of it, means that we try and isolate each infection in itself. And we say, okay, what does a cold do? What does, you know, flu do? What does this bacterial um, gastro uh, infection do? What does this parasite do? But by doing that, we always look at the immune system as if it was starting afresh. Mm -hmm. But our immune systems are not starting afresh. They're dealing with 15 fires at the same time, Mm -hmm. and they've got a history. And so what I try to do in my lab is try and account only a tiny bit, because I do polyparasitism, but I only do two, because doing three, four, five, ten is just too much for me right now. <laughs> uh, but that would be the goal, right, is to understand in the real world, our immune system is so pushed in so many different directions. I was telling you about what happens when, you know, if you're trying to fight something small that's reproducing very quickly, you're going to want to do one thing. If you're fighting something big, that's causing a lot of damage, you want to do something else. If you're fighting something in the lung, you may have some specific requirements that are different to the gut, that are different to the blood. And so trying to understand how those things affect responses to each other is what I'm trying to do so that when we do find drugs or vaccines or whatever it is, they have a better chance of making it when we say, okay, let's take some real people who have got some real immune system baggage with them is this going to work for them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's i mean it makes sense that there's a lot going on in the in the body and the immune system all the time um what i think that you know and again i'm just picking up on something you just said and i never really thought about it but the history you know Mm -hmm. your your sort of immune immunological history so yeah. that's got to start like from the moment you're born, probably mm-hmm. even you could probably even start in the womb. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Oh, yeah. So it's so there's a lot of work being done in the womb mm-hmm. right now, um, for sure. I'm going to do my political plug right now. Vaccines are great. And that's why we have them. <laughs> I, I say it all uh, the time. <laughs> so no. So the reason behind vaccines is really to try and educate your immune system faster and in a way that doesn't overwhelm it. Mm-hmm. So by giving it um, these, essentially you're giving it a disease in a very controlled setting. So you're saying to the immune system, here's measles, but I'm telling you what it looks like. I'm giving you an easy target. And the measles says, thank you. Mm-hmm. Next time I see measles, I'm good. Right. Um, and so, so that's what you kind of want. And that's what vaccines are there for to help you. Because what you want is for your immune system to have these little you know, flashcards to help it out as soon as it sees something to say, oh, yeah, what's this one? Okay, this is flu. Let's go, go, go. Or, Mm -hmm. oh, this is worms. We know these guys. Okay, we're going to have to make do with them. It's annoying. But Mm -hmm. we know what to do so they don't totally destroy our insides. Um, 
and that comes over time. Um, and so depending on what your immune system has seen, what it's been trained to see, um, it will respond differently. Right. Now, there are some things that are difficult, right? The flu vaccine, the reason you have to get it every year is because flu is an extremely clever shapeshifter. And every year it changes just enough. So your immune system goes, oh, I don't know what that is. It's like, come on, immune system, it's flu, you should know. <laughs> but but flu's put on you know, like a mustache or, you know, a crazy hat or some funky glasses and your immune system is totally at a loss. Um, and so some bugs can do that and others don't. So flu's very, very good at doing that, which is why we have to have a different vaccine every year. But for example, um, yellow fever, when you have that vaccine, you only really have it once. And I think it's once every 10 years, but I, I think that's more of a, just a standard thing. I don't know if anybody's checked how far the, mm -hmm. the protection actually goes, but that yellow fever one doesn't change as much. So again, the history of your immune system, it's gonna depend on what you've seen. If you've seen just a lot of different, different flus, you're gonna be able to recognize a lot of different flus. May you, can you recognize a new flu? Probably not. Mm -hmm. But if you've seen worms and you've seen this and you've seen that and you've seen something else and you've got a few other things going on at the same time, then all of that is going to help um, kind of decide how your immune system deals with things. Right. So is there a situation then, you know, cause again, like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, the, the, the concept of vaccines and training your mm -hmm. immune system and stuff like that all makes sense. But is there a way in which your, you know, history, um, is a negative like is there any way that it's like you know i could see maybe undertrained yeah. like if you lived in a bubble your whole life but yeah not even not thinking good. yeah not, not, good. <laughs> not even thinking of that way i'm just trying to think yeah. of you know again like the complexity of these things that you're looking at and it's just another factor that you have to account for when you're yeah so it can be so it depends so again all of the research we've been doing and you know most scientists work on cells or animals or human populations that are healthy mm -hmm. right but if you work with um animals or humans that are nutritionally deficient so that you know their diet's not great um they're not well in that sense like their metabolism isn't working very well they they, they don't have enough energy to do what they need to do then actually having all these bugs and having this immune system try to deal with all of that is actually a big pull on resources and so you can take it over the edge where actually things that might not be deadly to someone who's in a healthy situation um, can become very serious to someone who doesn't have good access to food good access to water um, and is not able to maintain basic functions because your immune system is very expensive mm -hmm. in terms of energy right i mean it should be because you're bombarded with a gazillion everything all the time um, and you're still alive, which is amazing. Um, but it is, you know, very expensive process. So if, if you're not in the best health for other reasons, you know, and you could have underlying genetic factors and um, there are a whole bunch of genetic conditions, which could mean that um, you're ill and, and you can't uh, use those resources appropriately, then it becomes, you know, having a, living in an environment where you have a lot of challenges can actually become problematic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I only took one, one course in my university career on the immune system <laughs> and 
that was overwhelming to say that yeah no most people love it or hate it and to be fair there's a lot of jargon and a lot of in-depth um processes and and pathways and molecules and cells which um i try to get away from when i'm talking to people who aren't immunologists because i actually think the immune system does an amazing job mm -hmm. and we don't think about it all the time and and we don't think about it like how would you design one like yeah. it, it's quite tricky to think oh, okay so i have to deal with this i have to deal with this and then oh by the way i'm just gonna throw this in too Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to throw in a microbiome. So you've got bugs all over you all the time. And some are friendly and some are not. How are you going to figure that out? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I think sometimes as scientists and as immunologists, we do ourselves a disservice by making it a little bit too fancy when it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, the thing that struck me about it, the, you know, those one course that I took, and it was actually, a, a, I think, a clever way um, that the teacher taught it uh, mm -hmm. is because the, the final exam was really, it was like a situation, like you get like three different situations. So you have yeah. this bacteria has infected this person. Mm -hmm. What? would be the or sort of the order of okay. things that would happen and you kind of build it like a flow chart mm -hmm. and this really you know stood out to me and it kind of like points to you say like how would you build it it kind of showed the sort of elegance of the whole thing in that and it's obviously it's not happening sequent like everything's happening all at yeah. once but when you look at it it's like okay bacteria introduced these are the first cells that arrive and they're going to show up and then they're going to start sending out signals to recruit all these other ones. And then mm -hmm. these other guys are going to show up and they're going to look at the, the bacteria and they're going to be like, what is it? And once they figure out what it is, then they're going to tag it. They're going to like yeah. throw antibodies on it so that the killer ones can then come in and find them. And, and it's, so it's just like this cascading of events that's really complex, but it's actually like when you think about a design, it's a, it's a pretty good design. It is good design. A lot of people use the word elegance. I always think about it as a really messy wall. So uh, <laughs> yeah, less that's... elegant, more, more like <laughs> more disaster and people desperately trying to get things done. Uh, and with like Chaos, and guts sure. in the process. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, the system is very complex. Um, it's redundant in some ways. So some cells can do multiple things. For mm -hmm. example, if, if one parasite is good at evading a particular cell, there's another one that's going to be able to say, well, you know, my friend couldn't get you, but I can. So um, we'll do it that way. And and it is very intricate, um, you know, at the molecular level, it's very specific molecules that we found out are involved. Um, but it's that, to me, it's that continual kind of back and forth. Oh, I can, I can sneak in here. Nope, I got you. No, okay, I'll sneak, I'll do this. Nope, no, nope, we got that covered. And this continual back and forth between the two. And then where that kind of equilibrium ends up mm -hmm. figuring itself out, right? So, I mean, I talk about doing co-infection with two parasites in my lab, but if you go, I mean, you lived in the area I live in now near Calgary. If you go out and pick out any animal out there, you know, uh, you're going to find five, six, seven, you know, 10 plus parasites just kicking around, some on the outside, some on the inside. I mean, frogs are an amazing example. They've already always got a gazillion things in there. And rodents, the same. Um, you know, if you go into the scientific paper and you, uh, papers and you, and you look at what people have found, they list all the parasites they find in these animals. There's a lot of things living together 
quite happily. Um, and the animals are, you know, alive and the parasites are alive and they've all found their little space and they all managed to, you know, live amongst each other. So um, that's kind of what I'm interested in is, is that how that ecosystem sorts itself out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, yeah, what, what is every, what is everybody doing in order that everyone can sort of oh, just tolerate yeah. each other? Everybody stays alive. Yeah. <laughs> so how does, how does this work out? Yeah. So is it, I mean, is maybe this is the wrong way to think about it, but it seems like, you know, we talk about this equilibrium point. So mm-hmm. it's like, think all these processes and stuff are still kind of happening in the background, but at a mm-hmm. level that's not you know, harming any one individual, or is it more sort of like big swings up and down in activity kind of thing? Um, Yeah. So it's going to depend. So, so for example, toxoplasma. So I have it and it's in my brain quite happily right now. Mm -hmm. I'm sure people Um, have heard of that. That's the cat one that goes. Yeah. That's the cat one. You got to be careful when you're pregnant, that kind of thing. So, um, and a lot of people have it, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if anybody else there has it or finds out they have it, don't panic. It's fine. Um, so I've got it, but it's not, not doing anything. And my immune system is not, not doing anything. So it's not like they're just ignoring each other. Mm -hmm. Right, because toxoplasma is in my brain, but hopefully I don't die anytime soon. Because what it wants to do is to get to the next person. Mm-hmm. Usually, when it's in animals, the way it does that is when the animal dies and gets eaten by another animal, it can get passed on. Right. Um, in my case, hopefully I've got a few more years, so that's not going to happen. And not so, really in danger of being eaten. So. <laughs> I, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, so it's in my brain. It's just waiting there, but it's not. Um, it's not just going to hang out and wait for all that time. What it does is every so often there's a couple of parasites that escape the protective home it's made for itself. And they just go and check out whether still an immune system out there or they have a chance. Mm -hmm. And so if, and my immune system's ready always. And so when a few of them come out, they get completely toasted Mm -hmm. and they're done. And so toxoplasma will keep doing this. Right. So that if, for example, I needed a transplant, let's say, and so I needed to be on drugs for the rest of my life that basically minimized any of my immune system. Because when you have a transplant, your immune system might reject it. So you have to take right. drugs for the rest of your life to try and tone down any immune responses you have. Right. So in that case, if I was on those drugs because of my transplant, still have toxoplasma, but when those little guys now are sneaking out, my immune system can't. Mm-hmm. deal with them and so then toxoplasma can go and infect and essentially go and infect other places again and it actually causes quite serious damage at that point right so it's continually although we call it a chronic infection and i don't notice it and you know i there's no no symptoms associated with it it keeps testing my immune system to just check whether there's an opportunity to go somewhere else mm-hmm. and invade another place um and my immune system always has to be on the lookout otherwise you get things like ocular toxoplasmosis which is horrible toxoplasma in your eye where you can become blind um you get all these gross things that you really don't want to get and you only really see that in either very rare cases or people whose immune system has basically broken down and so their body is no longer able to keep that toxoplasma in check so every time it sends little um 
parasites out, we can't to, uh, kind of kill those anymore. Mm -hmm. So when, you know, it is, it's one of those things that when you think about long-term infections, they're never stagnant. It's not like your parasite says, Hey, I got a home. I'm just going to hang out. Mm-hmm. They're always pushing, pushing, pushing to see if they can do a little bit more, a little bit more. Right, right. It's um, like always testing, exactly. testing the walls. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I guess that's the thing, you know, that I was thinking about with this. And another th aspect of the immune system that to me is really interesting is that, you know, when you have this sort of, you know, infection that just comes in and there's all this flurry of activity and stuff, the body has to also find a way to shut that down you know, cause there's a cost, yes. right? Like there's inflammation yeah. and damage. So then when you're dealing with these chronic infections, that's kind of plays into it as well. Right. Cause it's like, we can't be too aggressive. Otherwise we'll hurt ourselves. And yes. And there's, um, there's a extra trick there that a lot of the parasites that are chronic are able to manipulate your immune system to do that to their advantage. Cool. So worms will turn on cells that turn everything off and they're um, like, we're not here. Don't worry. Turn everything off. It's all good. And your immune system's like, okay, well, whatever you're telling us to turn it off, we'll turn it off. Um, and actually it's even more crazy than that. So there's the worm I work on is, is a worm that infects mice, but it's very similar to a lot of worms that we get in humans or livestock. And it makes a molecule that looks like a mammalian one to shut things down but it does it even better. So when it tells cells to shut it down, it does it even better than our own molecules. It it's more way stronger. It's way more effective, wow. way more efficient. Um, and so it's like the super molecule that's like, whoa, no, everybody shut it down, shut it down now. Like not tomorrow, like now, 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 now. Yeah. Um, and so we've now started finding these amazing molecules um, that these worms are doing. So they kind of take they're like designing their own. They take ours as a prototype and they're like, yeah, no, we can do better than this. Uh, and so there's an upgrade to those molecules. And so they do a really good job of turning off our immune system. That's incredible. That's, yeah. that's really, yeah, that's amazing. And then, I mean, this might, we might end up getting like a little too into the weeds here, but this is just, again, I, I got a thought that I got to get out. <laughs> is you know we talk about these things as you know like it's it it used it as a prototype or it saw mm -hmm. ours and then but what is actually the mechanism there because it's evolution right like it's a step-by-step -step yes. process but yeah. is there like a sort of a similar you know when they're looking at this mammalian mom molecule that you know they would like to mimic again these are the wrong mm -hmm. terms to think about it when yes. it's part of yeah, evolution no, it's terrible i'm always saying the parasites have a brain but yeah. you know that this is all down to continual interactions between parasites and the immune system and if you don't survive you're dead and your genes aren't passed on and mm -hmm. if you survive you're alive and your genes are passed on right. right so any tweaks that happen through random processes of just you know, when you replicate DNA and you replicate cells, there are small changes all the time. Um, those small changes over time lead to bigger changes. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I say the parasite uses us as a prototype and makes its own, we're still not quite sure how that happens, mm -hmm. right? Because the parasite can't just decide to make a molecule. It has to be, that molecule has to be coded and embedded in its genome. So it's usually a molecule that has another role that somehow has mutated and then that parasite that has the better molecule 
will be able to survive better. Right. So in this, this particular example I have, the molecule is actually um, a molecule that is used in all kinds of things, growth, cell development, and everything ah. else. It is also used by the immune system to shut things down in very particular circumstances. And what's happened with the parasites one is that it's able to bind the receptor in a very new way. Mm -hmm. So um, the receptor is, is, is kind of like a blob and the, the mammalian one binds one side, but the parasite is it, one is able to bind both sides of the blob. So it binds one side and the other side. And mm -hmm. by doing that kind of supercharges the message and it's right. like, okay, go, 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 go. Um, but this is not something that was made from scratch. Like that molecule is found in all kinds of animals it's really important in cell development mm. and so how it became important for the immune system to turn things off we don't really know it only does it in particular circumstances as i was saying you need other molecules around just to say hey no yes this is a a cocktail of molecules telling you this is what you need to do mm -hmm. um and you know how the parasite one changed maybe it just evolved slowly over time there were a couple of mutations which allowed it to then bind this other side by binding the other side you made like a parasite that was so great at turning the immune system off that's the one that started kind of being right. um the best at surviving and then it made it so that we see these so we only see the end right, right? we only see the end product and what you really want to see is that that journey that has happened between the parasite and the immune system all the way through mm -hmm. um we rarely see those we tend to see them when there's something new that pops up like a new what we call invasive or, or kind of new emerging diseases and then we can kind of follow those through populations and see what happens mm -hmm. but honestly we've only recently had the tools like the genetic and genomic tools to be able to do that so i think it's going to be something that's going to be really interesting in the future have we done it in the past maybe some scientists have had a really good try at it but the tools were not really there to do right. it exactly. to sort of track it the changes in yeah. real time yeah exactly yeah this is yeah so so essentially it's it's found a way to repurpose a molecule that's mm -hmm. that's been used for a lot of different things so this makes yeah. me think of a couple things the first again because like i guess where i was going with the original thought was like we have an immune system the parasite yeah. has these molecules that have evolved to sort of combat. It's like, do they have like a anti-immune system? Like, is like, is that almost, is that a way of yes. thinking about it? Like they have an arsenal. So they do have, they do have what you would call an anti-immune system. Mm -hmm. So, but they, some of them also have an immune system, right? Worms they have, their have own an immune, immune system. system. Yeah. yeah. So worms have to survive bacteria and viruses and they have their own immune system. Not quite the same as ours. Um, there are, differences between invertebrate and vertebrate immune systems usually to do to just to do with the complexity of of the different types of things mm -hmm. but they can all do the same thing it's just an invertebrate usually one type of cell will do lots of things in the vertebrate one it'll have been split up in a number of cells that have each have their little job more specialized um, yeah yeah but yeah so the worms have their own immune system which does stuff and then they also have a whole bunch of molecules that they spew out all the time. Um, the fancy name is the excretory secretory products, mm -hmm. um, if you really want to go there. Um, <laughs> but essentially, that is now being characterized by a lot of scientists to try and understand what is in there. Because what that soup basically is able to shut off our immune system. Right. So could we use that soup 
to shut off our immune. So number one, we want to understand how that works. Mm -hmm. But also some people are thinking, hey, we could use this soup to shut off our immune system when we want to shut it off mm -hmm. um, rather than using something else. Mm -hmm. So there's loads of people looking into that soup. It's complicated because at the beginning we thought, oh, we'll just look at it. It'll be proteins. It'll be amazing. And then some people said, well, what about carbohydrates? And mm -hmm. what about lipids? And what about combinations of those, which is even more scary. Um, and, and really we're finding that, yeah, it's combinations. So there's hundreds of things in there. Yeah. And that the one, you know, in worms, um, about 20 years ago now, one lab found one molecule that did something, but it is the only one that we've been able to identify as a single one that has a huge impact Right. that I can think of. Everybody else just uses the soup or part of the soup Right. says, oh, I took this bit of the soup, still works. So at least this bit has something that works in it. Um, but it's been really hard to say, oh, it's this molecule. Mm -hmm. or this molecule does this. Right. Um, that's the tricky bit. In order to like take all of these products that the parasites are using to manipulate our immune system and develop some kind of a immune function drug or something like this yeah yeah so there's there's different ways so one would be to try and stop the parasite doing that and right. say okay let's block what the person so we have an immune system the parasite's trying to block it let's try to block what's trying to block the immune system so <laughs> triple blocking <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the immune system has something already that could uh thwart the parasite attack but it doesn't make enough of it or it's making it in the wrong place mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. um, it doesn't know how to make it and so we could steer it in the right direction and say you know what instead of making these molecules which clearly are not working because the parasite's still here why don't you make these we we think these are going to help right and then you kind of steer the immune system to making the right thing or as you said people are looking at the soup and thinking okay well Let's forget about worms. I don't care about them, but I care about what they make because they are basically immune system controlling drugs. Can I use those for something else mm -hmm. where the immune system's got out of hand? So common things now are, you know, either autoimmune diseases where the immune system starts attacking you, um, things where we still don't understand what they're caused by, like inflammatory bowel disease, all these things where it makes you unwell and uncomfortable. Um, and we don't know how to fix it. Mm -hmm. So your immune system is just going into overdrive. If we could dampen that down, maybe patients would feel better and that would be a way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, dampen it down without having to, because this is, I'm sure people have heard about that, right? Like people taking worms on purpose in order yes. to dampen their own immune system down. Mm -hmm. But if you could find so the thing that does it without <laughs> yes. having to have the worm, that would be yes. ideal. So my little shout out is please don't buy worm eggs on the internet. Yeah. You can. Um, it's not recommended. No. Uh, no definitely I've had not. a worm. You know, it's fine. It's not great. Um, but it's more about, you know, if you do this, you have no control, right? So mm -hmm. it's one thing being able to find a molecule in the worm soup, finding the dosage, all of this, and then making it into a drug. It's quite another taking a bunch of worms hoping they do something. Some worms do, some worms don't. You have, you might be reactive to some worms and not others. They can give you quite severe stomach upsets. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, anecdotally, some patients swear by it and say, you know, I'd rather just have the worms and I feel way better. 
we've tried a couple of trials. They haven't, to be honest, they didn't find anything amazing, but they were probably underpowered. So it's a bit hard to say. There weren't, there basically weren't enough people to really say whether it worked. Um, that, yeah. There was an effect because the placebo effect was so big. So people who we get who thought they were getting worm eggs did really well too. Right. So yeah. Um, but this is an avenue uh, of research. The one I think that's done really well is to do with um, uh, food intolerances. So there's been some work in Australia about taking worms to try and limit the effect of food intolerance, um, and that seems to be going pretty well. Hmm. So like allergies. Like yeah allergies. so uh yeah so and i again i don't want to make a mistake um okay it's but just a podcast. it would pro- yeah it would pro- <laughs> it's something like you know either peanut allergies yeah. or, or weed allergies that kind of thing where essentially it's your immune system getting it wrong so your immune system gets it right most of the time but when you have an allergy like that essentially what your immune system is thinking is oh my goodness peanuts they're like the enemy let's go 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 and nobody's saying, no, wait a second, peanuts are fine. What is wrong with you? Okay, we had a little mishap in the, in the you know, in the training. Um, you got a little bit confused. So what the worms do is because they're dampening that immune system, the peanut doesn't stimulate that mm-hmm. crazy mm-hmm. response. And so that's that's one place where it seems like there might actually be some decent evidence for um for for the worm molecules to actually have a a beneficial effect right yeah i mean i guess the other like you know precaution note of caution about just giving yourself worms is all these things that you were talking about is that there's this delicate balance going on in your Mm -hmm. so if you add something to it that's not you know hasn't been in the mix maybe it, it you know knocks it all out maybe it doesn't but then it's also, this isn't going to be the only thing that you're challenged with for the rest of your life. Say you have these worms and it's helping your, your system, but then what if you get something else? What if you have another, Yeah. and then it tips the scales in a way that you, you know, weren't expecting. Yeah. And especially since, you know, worms are really good at dampening things down. Well, that's great when things are to excess, but if you got flu, you need to fight flu. There's no dampening down about it. Yeah. You want to fight it. Yeah. Uh, same with measles. Same with any of these diseases that are very, you know, short term, really strong, need a really strong immune response so that you can kick it out of there. If you got worms saying, no, no, it's all good. We're shutting it off. It's all fine. Everybody's happy. Um, flu or measles or whatever it is, I'm going to go, okay, well, I'm going to just keep going. Right. right. So you may have had the vaccine. But because you're in a situation where actively your immune system is being toned down by something else, it may that training may not be enough to be able to come out of the come right. out on top when it comes to this. Right. So all in all, just try to avoid. Don't eat worms. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my. Uh, don't eat worms unless your doctor and that doctor is certified by a medical board. Um, recommends it right right i mean that should be a no-brainer right but uh yeah well you know so you know we laugh about it and it sounds like a no-brainer but if you are severely ill Mm -hmm. and you feel pain and discomfort every day and there are no drugs to help you and nothing helps you and you are depressed and someone says to you want to try worm eggs to be honest, I might be, you know what, at this point in time, what's the worst that can happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, I'll try worm eggs. I'll try anything. Give me bees. I'll eat bees. It's all good. You know, I um, so, the, you know, we, 
in the scientific community, sometimes we laugh a little bit at this kind of stuff. And, and you know, same with all these um, websites. So I do a course in pastology and I use websites that have clearly, you know, things that are highly exaggerated or actually fake. Um, but I use them because they work on people who are just desperate for something mm -hmm. because they're in pain or they're uncomfortable. And when you're in pain chronically and your doctor says, there's nothing I can do for you, honestly, like, I think I would just try anything once. Yeah. Um, so that's why, you know, I can completely understand that if someone said, here's a Gatorade, it's got worm eggs in it. Just try it. Be like, okay. Yeah. And then if three weeks later, nothing happens, nothing happens. And if three weeks later, I feel a bit better. I'm like, okay, yay. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I feel better because of placebo, because of the worms, I don't care. Right. I felt better. Right. So, so that's, um, it's, it's very difficult to put yourself in the, um, space of someone that is desperate mm -hmm. and we forget about that all too often. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, we're like, well, why don't you just go to your doctor? It's like, well, because I've been to my doctor five times mm -hmm. and there's only so many narcotics I'm allowed. So uh, now I'm out and I'm still in pain. I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the moral of the story is still, please don't take worm eggs yeah. unsupervised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And don't try it for fun. Right. I've had a tapeworm. It's okay, but I really wouldn't, like you don't lose weight. You just eat a heck of a lot more than you would normally. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other one, the weight one. No, I think that's a yeah. really good point that you just made. And, you know, I'm probably guilty of that too, uh, you know, sort of poking fun at some of these things. But when you consider the, you don't know the motivations behind the person, mm -hmm. you know, like maybe, like you said, they've, there's no relief anywhere. And, yeah. you know, doctors maybe aren't taking them seriously. I actually, I did one of these podcasts with another friend from the parasite community who works with um, ticks. And, yep. uh, he gets a lot of people, a lot, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was significant enough that we ended up talking about it. And he had to like develop a plan as to how to deal with people that were sending him things saying, I think oh, I yeah. have a parasite, but no one takes me seriously. And they find his name on the, you know, veterinary mm -hmm. parasitology website yes. of a university and they're sending him and, but it's because they have, you know, no recourse. No one takes them seriously. Yes, there is also something called parasite psychosis. That's yeah, that um, was it. Yeah, which is when people feel like there's something inside them or something on them um, that isn't there, and that is a recognized um, mental illness um, that actually can be treated with antipsychotic drugs. But it's a very fine line. Well, it's very difficult to tell someone who comes in with parasites actually you don't have a parasite problem you have a mental illness problem mm -hmm. so those cases are usually referred to specialists and and dealt with very carefully but there is um you know not an insignificant number of people who will come in feeling like they have something inside them it's it's a well-recognized uh, symptom mm -hmm. um and so same thing they'll either bring loads of samples they'll bring drawings um they'll, they'll describe in excruciating detail exactly what they found um but it tends to be something that isn't actually to do with pastology but more of a mental illness issue and so um that kind of uh, the parasitologists usually get the front end of it of all these kind of samples coming through mm -hmm. um when I was in Toronto, there was actually a clinician that dealt with a lot of these cases. And so if there was anything like that, we'd just 
pass it along to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was very good with that. Um, it just depends on you know what kind of healthcare system is in place, right? And whether the the clinician recognizes that that's what's going on. But it, it tends there are very clear signs that that is happening. Someone who usually brings in a lot of samples, who has way more detail than necessary on everything, is someone who's clearly this has taken up a lot of their time mm-hmm. and they spend a long time kind of describing and analyzing and all of this, you know, usually if, if you're not having that much of an issue, you might say, Oh, gross. I have a worm. Can you deal with it? But that's about as far as it goes. You don't have a running tally of what happened to you day by day. Um, yeah. In that context. It's, it doesn't become sort of obsessive, I guess, or yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 That was always interesting. And I, I, again, never really, never really considered that, but you can only imagine the, and I mean, I guess, I mean, you've had a tapeworm, so you know, but yep. this is the thing. It's like, you know, I studied parasites for, you know, six years in, in my PhD and graduate school. And it, I never, I don't, as far as I know, I never had a tapeworm or anything like that. I feel like you would know. I feel like you would know. So this is the thing that, yeah, this is the, this is the thing that like always, you know, creeps me out, yeah. even as a guy that like was in this world for a while is yeah. that just that concept of knowing that it's in there you know like yeah so it was weird um being a scientist and having scientist friends they did name my tapeworm aristotle (laughs) um so i had it as a pet for a little while lovely lovely (laughs) um it is strange to know like even now right i have toxoplasma in my brain Mm -hmm. and i know it's there and there have been numerous studies to say that there are behavioral changes that are not because of me, mm-hmm. but they're because I have a parasite in my brain. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's a little too weird to think about it. So I don't, yeah. um, but you know, we also have a microbiome over every single surface of our body. So, right. you know, your skin, your gut, your lungs, your nose lining, your mouth, your eyelids, you got mites on your eye, eye mm-hmm. um, eyelashes, you know, all of this. So we tend to think of ourselves as clean, but we are hotbeds of little micro things yeah all around and i think if we really thought about it (laughs) it'd be pretty gross um you know the number of things that are growing on us at all times and we don't tend to talk about fungi at all but there's fungi everywhere as well Mm -hmm. they kind of come into the parasite definition just because nobody really knows where to put them but um so so yes having a parasite is weird but you know having a worm is weird because it's big and you know it's there and I can be gross on this podcast, but there are two types of tapeworms. One that stays in there quite happily and just the little egg sacs just come out when you go to the bathroom. The other one doesn't do that. It just comes out when it wants. And that's the one I had. So that was not fun. (laughs) So like it comes out to like lay eggs? Like no, it's just so like I'm the little done. egg sacs yeah. just come out, but the little egg sacs are kind of alive and they squiggle out. Oh. It's disgusting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so you'll be walking down the street and you're like, oh, yeah, that was an egg sac. Oh. Pretty gross. Um, so I would recommend the other one if you're going to pick one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Um, but you know. That only I only thought about it because it was big and I had to go to a doctor to get drugs to get rid of it. But actually, if you think about it, we're just covered in stuff mm-hmm. all all the time. I'm sorry if people feel itchy right now because I can imagine yeah. people are suddenly wanting to scratch. Yeah. Um, but you know that there are whole ecosystems on different right. parts yeah. of us. Um, and people are starting to look into that now. Like there are 
scientific papers about all the different, because we think that it's the same, but actually the bacteria or the fungi or the viruses or the parasites that are on your hands are different to the ones that are, you know, are under your armpit that are different to the ones on the top of your head. And so we're just a lovely environment mm-hmm. for other people, which, you know, is nice <laughs> to think of it that way. We're home for a lot of <laughs> other little things. Um, so yeah, we're, we're all like that. It's just whether or not we've classified them as something that is different to everybody else. Yeah. 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 The microbiome stuff is fascinating. I've done a, a, a bit of work writing in my new writing career on some stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it's, I'm kind of deep in that world right now. And it's just amazing. It's fascinating how it's all, what's going yeah, on. Yeah. I tried to st- stay well away from it in my research just because it is another level of complexity exactly. that, <laughs> that I try. So, so the way, you know, in our, um, experiments, the microbiome is somewhat controlled for not extremely well, but somewhat controlled for when you add in microbiome diversity into your experiments, then you blow everything out of the water again. So, right. um, you know that, for example, there's one in experiment in in animals where we've found that there is a particular aspect, a particular molecule in the immune system, which is absolutely, completely necessary to clear worms. If you don't have it, basically you're just never going to clear worms. Mm-hmm. But if you put those animals in the wild and they get to eat grass and burrow and do this and do that, well, it doesn't seem to play that much of a role anymore. Hmm. So, you know, what we see when we control for things is great, but maybe there are things that are more important that take over. So if your microbiome is different, if you're more active, if the nutrition is different, if you're happier, you know, if you're scared of predators, so you're hiding in a hole all day, all these things that we don't account for because they are behavior or the things that are difficult to control for, they clearly also play a role mm-hmm. um it's just difficult to add all that complexity to try and find things out right and i mean that's it like you have to draw the line somewhere right when you're doing experience yeah. until we have the you know the ai supercomputer that can yes. deal with all that complexity <laughs> we gotta we gotta chunk it out yeah. and do it notch by notch. which you know science is using that technology now mm-hmm. um so for example for cancer especially i think they trained a computer to basically read all the scientific literature on cancer and it was better at predicting um kind of cancer whether or not or finding whether or not patients had cancer than than clinicians so so being able to have a computer that can manage that amount of data mm-hmm. is um is going to become something that is going to become huge mm-hmm. because my brain is only so big right. and I only remember so many papers and I'm biased. You know, I read things by people I know mm-hmm. or things that are new or things in journals that I trust. Um, but maybe a supercomputer that can take everything in mm-hmm. can start seeing patterns that I just am not physically capable of seeing. Right. 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 Well, and even you and like a network of collaborators yeah. or, you know, like it's, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, it makes sense with the immune system too. We're talking about how complex it is and how many different mm-hmm. molecules there are. And like, they have to like interlock in a very specific yeah. way. You know, there's so many things. That and look I'm like... interested in parasites. So I look at it only in parasites, yeah. but maybe if I looked at it in cancer, I'd find something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so, so it's the human brain is great, but you know, 
I'm not that interested in looking at cancer, not because I don't think it's important. It's just not what gets me jumping out of bed in the morning. I like studying the parasites and I also can't do everything. Right. Exactly. Um, So if a supercomputer said, oh my goodness, everything you found, you know, in your paper in parasites is actually applicable to this completely different concept than anything else, that would be amazing because then suddenly we would have leaps that we didn't know about Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and we'd be able to make connections that we wouldn't be able to on our own. Yeah. Well, and actually this makes a, you know, something I've talked about on this podcast before is like the importance of basic research, right? Because you never know when those connections are going to the the stuff that you find will be applicable in another field. Mm -hmm. And in this imaginary world where we have this (laughs) computer, think about that though, right? Like, because it does make, it would make, you could see these connections and maybe people would, uh, people who fund research or support research would, or are inclined not to, would see the value of it, you know, because you could be like, look it, this is a direct link here, direct link here. The reality is as well that, you know, it is extremely rare and I don't think I've heard of it where you set out to do something, you get funding for it and you do exactly what you said and it works exactly in the way you thought it right. would. Right. Yeah. That just doesn't happen. Usually you have a great idea. You ask for funding for it. You try to do it. It's impossible or it doesn't work or it shows up something the exact opposite of what you thought. And so you go in a different direction and that still is like, Oh, that's not working. Then And then 15 years later, someone says, Ooh, that's interesting. And now, you know, and so this is what happened for the Nobel prize um, last year, I guess, where two people who were working on very, very basic immunological processes actually came up with um, checkpoint inhibitors for cancer, which are now one of the most effective um, drugs that we have, like chemotherapy drugs that we have, and they're they're being developed right now and they're being refined, but they weren't working on cancer. Mm -hmm. They were trying to understand how some molecules at the surface of those cells interact with other molecules. They had no, you know, other reason to do that apart from some people are fascinated by molecular interactions, not my thing, but I'm glad that they're interested in it. Um, And so by doggedly kind of looking at how those things worked and, and identifying what receptors bound to what and what part of the receptor and what happened and what was the consequence for the cells and all of that, Later down the line, it was like, oh, wait a second. Someone thought, hmm, well, this makes sense. We, if we could block this or stimulate this, mm-hmm. then we could stop or activate cells, mm-hmm. right? Right. But it's very hard to come up with that from the beginning if you don't have all that work on the underlying right. kind of mechanisms that are going on. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, science is really collaboration and it needs everybody it needs everybody working on the very basic things and then the people who are going to take that very basic thing and translate it all the way to the end and say okay so you might have thought it worked but actually when you take it to patients for some reason it doesn't work the way we think it does mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or it does work the way we think it does hurrah hooray we found what we wanted right yeah um so so there is at the moment there is a drive to push for translational or i think the new funky buzzword is transformational science um, <laughs> so I hope you're doing some of that. Um, but really, you know, that drive only works if it's within a community that is pushing at all levels of science, mm-hmm. whether that's very, very basic to all the way through to, um, the very applied. Yeah. 
because if we don't have the basic and we don't understand how things work we will miss things yeah um and that that's you know there are opportunities there yeah. um one of the ones that people always like to talk about is um shrimp eyes so there was someone who was working on shrimp eyes for ages very little funding who wants to work on shrimp eyes who cares but essentially they found a reflective substance in shrimp eyes that now nasa uses for a lot of space spacecraft yeah so you might not think shrimp eyes are fascinating some scientists did and <laughs> and clearly went on to have a career working only on shrimp eyes but nobody could have predicted yeah that shrimps had a essentially biomolecule or, or um uh you know something that was then applicable in materials mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to something completely different yeah yeah and so that that's kind of an example i like to use because it doesn't matter what you work on as long as you do good science and you have good controls and you have um a pro you know you analyze your data appropriately you don't over interpret them you don't try and egg them on and say you're going to cure all the world's ills but if you do good science and you do it incrementally over time we actually don't know who's going to have the most impact mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Mr. Shrimp probably didn't think <laughs> that this was going to lead to uh, an amazing thing. But, you know, yeah. biomimicry is a huge thing now and a lot of people are looking into it. Yeah. Um, and so um, I, don't, I think that it's unwise to put all your eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what just doing translational research is putting all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. It doesn't mean you shouldn't get money for it, but it just means that you need to spread it around to make mm -hmm. sure that those things that are completely serendipitous still are allowed to happen. Yeah, have a chance to, to even occur. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now that we're kind of into the zone of science in general and stuff and science as a career, if you have just a few more minutes, uh, mm -hmm. I want to touch on something because my wife is here organizing a satellite meeting for one of their conferences where she's talking about women in STEM. Mm -hmm. STEM uh field and uh, and as you are a woman in <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, made it to the level where you have a lab and you write grants and you know you're yeah. you're doing science you're in the field um i'm just curious yeah what is your you know is there i don't know how to phrase this exactly but you know politically correct yeah, <laughs> i guess i guess i mean that's never been my strong point but i guess i should start yeah. trying uh no just no to... us science ladies can do science too it's okay. yeah of course i mean i'm not i'm not doubting that um i'm curious though like your perspective on because it is a topic you see on twitter and stuff all the time like what yeah. are the unique what in your experience that's what yeah. i'm interested in, your experience what is yeah. the what have been some of the challenges that you could point out so that yeah. you know people coming up can can recognize yeah. them or maybe people that were maybe not acting in a great way mm -hmm. will realize that they <laughs> they were or... maybe yeah yeah so it is a it's a big topic right now it's being politicized as well so it's kind of like one of those things where people either like you know are quite wary about talking about it um you know, the reality is, I think there are some challenges that women face in science that men just don't face. Mm -hmm. Do other people face challenges? Yes. Do people of color face challenges? Yes. You know, there's a whole bunch of people that face challenges mm -hmm. in um, science. Um, I think the reason that women are in the spotlight is just because women make up 50% of the society. And yet, you know, we don't find that through the ranks. They make up 50% of our undergrads in biology. Mm -hmm. And yet, 
you know, if, if even if we look at my department, I won't quote numbers, but let's just say that the female representation at the faculty level mm-hmm. is not stellar. Um, so are people trying to do things to address it? Yes. Um, do I get a lot of comments that I wish I didn't? Yes. So um, I'm going to put a little plug here for a book. I do not have shares. I do not know the author. I do nothing. But there was a book called Invisible Women mm-hmm. um, that her was written maybe last year or the year before, where she just highlights how society has been biased against women just from very many different aspects. Um, and it's not... It's not a woman, it's not a man bashing book, Mm -hmm. right? It's just a book about why society in in its current form doesn't necessarily work to women's advantage. And there is a whole chapter on universities. Um, And the difficulty about universities is that most people think it's fair, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's like, if you're good, you'll make it through the ranks. And if you talk to a lot of people, women and men alike, they'll say, well, you know, if candidate's excellent, we'll just pick the candidate. It doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman. It's not like I'm deliberately not picking women. Mm -hmm. But the problem doesn't lie there necessarily. It, deli- it lies in the fact that there are opportunities that women don't have or there are things that women do that don't count on a CV as much as things that men will do or there are things that women will take time on that are not valued. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happens then is that when you use the criteria that we've used up to now, women tend to, on paper, look less great. Right. Um, And so, you know, have I had inappropriate comments mentioned to me? Yes. Did I have people say that, oh, well, if I didn't get a position, I should just have babies. That'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, So all of those things uh, have happened to me. Do I, do I say anything to be honest? Not really um, because it just gets tiring (laughs) after a while. (laughs) Um, so I get men that get more pulled than me mm-hmm. and who want to do more about it than I do. Well, I'm just like, well, you know, same old, same old. Right. Um, it's just part of the deal. So what do I do? Um, here we have a, an associate dean of ethics and diversity. So a person in administration, essentially, in ethics and diversity. So I try to talk to them about issues that I see coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to push things that I think will help. Um, and I try to make sure that all my female students, postdocs, any staff I mentor with um, making sure that I really try to push them towards leadership Mm -hmm. because that is something that is valued now. And on average, the, the science has shown that men tend to be much better at, um, boasting might be the wrong word, but putting down what they've done, in a way that makes people see it as leadership whilst women will just say, you know, Oh, I did this, you know, in my spare time, it was mm-hmm. fun. And it's like, uh, you just ran a company there on the side. Was that, <laughs> that that's, that's leadership. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I try not to get angry or be negative. Am I angry and negative sometimes? Yes. Do I get into conversations when I get very angry with other colleagues because of ridiculous things that have happened? Yes. We just had a, a panel suggestion turned down for a conference because it was uh, all female and they were saying that was discrimination (laughs) and you felt, you know, and, and yes. Okay. You want multi gendered panels, but when one gender is, is underrepresented, then maybe having an all female 
panel isn't that bad. Right. So, you know, you have all these little things that kind of are small slaps in the face where you're like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, this is what's happening. Um, but, you know, there are efforts. Um, there have been at Canadian universities at least two of which the University of Calgary have made a pay increase across the board for all female faculty because of the pay gap. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, does that redress everything? No, but it's a nod to the fact that women um, are, it's not that they don't negotiate as much as men because they've done studies on this, it's that their negotiations are less listened to. So they tend to have lower salaries. Um, you know, is it all bad? Do I think about it every day? No. Mm-hmm. Do I try and just get on with my work in science? Yes, mm-hmm. but I am aware that it is out there. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, for any women in there who want to go into science, just use it to your advantage. Uh, that you know there's no reason why if you're good you should be trampled on just because you're mm-hmm. if if someone's having you know if if suddenly there are policies which are being um more open to female applicants i don't see that as being a problem right now we are underrepresented mm-hmm. in all the sciences including biology which is ridiculous seeing as there were so many biological sciences students who are female. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in my my um, undergrad classes, I think it was it was overwhelmingly female. Yeah. I think in most of my undergraduate biology classes, it was five men and fifteen women. You know, like it was. Yeah. 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 But. But it doesn't. That kind of doesn't make its way. Doesn't up. translate. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I mean, not know. everybody wants to be. Not even all the men. Not a, wants to go on to yeah. any job. But I mean. Yeah, the thing, the- but there, there have definitely been advances, right? So even the funding bodies in Canada at least recognize maternity leave, mm-hmm. which is nice. Yeah. Um, so that's excellent. Yeah. Um, but there's a long way to go. Yeah. Well, I think it's, yeah. I mean, what a lot of that stuff that you brought up there was really, you know, interesting and kind of the way that I've thought about it too, where there's just these certain, certain differences in the way that men and women, um, carry themselves like like you said men are mm-hmm. more willing to like put something down on a thing and look at what i did yeah. you know whereas yeah. women aren't but it's so it's it's recognizing that both on both sides right so you're saying you're you're talking to female students that you mentor saying no it's okay do that you can you can act that yeah. way but then on the other side on the receiving end the boards that are looking at cvs and stuff like that have to sort of adjust too. And I wonder if it's like there was, you know, because obviously these issues were way worse in the past. And when you have um, institutions like scientific institutions, academic institutions where people get tenure and they stay in these positions forever, it's like that's the way they operated and it was more normal to operate that way 20, 30 years ago. A lot, maybe some of those ideas are still ingrained because people stay for so long, this kind of thing. So it's yeah for sure and i i really think also there is this belief that in science because we are rigorous and we are impartial that we are completely blind to this yeah which is ridiculous we're not (laughs) but you know you will you will get people swear blindly that it's like i don't understand like i just picked the four best candidates and they happen to be guys Mm -hmm. and why why are you making a big deal out Mm -hmm. of it and, you know, it's not only that it's important for uh, female scientists to get exposure. So by giving um, it all, let, let's say you're having, you know, a session and you let 
only men speak, you're actually not only boosting the men, but you're actually, the women go down a peg because they haven't had the opportunity to present their work to the scientific community. Mm -hmm. But also for the generation coming up, you know, what they see as their models are not them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe they would have had a scientific career and maybe they would have liked it. It's just that they never saw it as an option for them because they never saw someone like them in that position. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have two little girls and my husband's a scientist and they don't see a difference between mommy's a scientist and daddy's a scientist. Mm -hmm. Like men, girls and boys can be scientists. It doesn't matter. But if you never see girls as a scientist, you just might not think that it's even an option for yeah. you. And so I think, you know, we're missing out on people who would do really well in science who are probably going on to do other things really well, mm-hmm. right? And they're somebody else's amazing star in business or whatever else. But science is missing out on the creativity, the imagination, you know, the, um, the, the hard work of a bunch of women who have chosen a different career because they just didn't feel like, science was welcoming to them mm-hmm. and that's that's upsetting mm-hmm. because i love my job and i think it's the best job in the world and sometimes i hate it but on average i love it yeah yeah when i think it goes to kind of maybe wrap it up i've kept you for a while here so um okay. <laughs> i think it's it kind of comes back or you can make a comparison to what we were talking about with you know you the uh, having basic research right like because you mm-hmm. never know what's going to break through. And so if we have just one standard of like, this is what makes good scientists, you know, yeah. then you're, you know, we should want a diversity of opinions, views, exactly. experiences, all this stuff, yep. because people are going to attack problems in different ways. Like that just makes sense, right? Like that. Just, yeah. Know. And it's being borne out in the business world, yeah. right? The more diverse your board, the better your company does. Yeah. That's just the bottom line. Yeah. So I don't know why in science that wouldn't be the same. Yeah that the more differences we have and the more consensus we can come to because we all strive towards, you know, a similar goal, mm-hmm. why that's not better than a whole bunch of samey, samey people in a room going, Oh yeah, no, you're great. No, you're great. No, you're yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm exaggerating, but, and I do want to say that there are a whole bunch of male scientists out there that are strong advocates mm-hmm. um, for female scientists and are doing a great job too. I just think that, changing societal norms is is difficult um and people get scared flustered upset Mm -hmm. um because when you change something that means that the status quo has to you know change Mm -hmm. um but would we all be better if it did change i think yes i think any diversity would help us tackle problems better Mm -hmm. yeah the more the more viewpoints the more angles you can attack any problem from is is yeah. going to be better and yeah it goes without saying that you don't have to take another group down a peg just to you know yeah nope. it's like it's not like that but you know yeah yeah but you know they, I, again it's kind of like you know the patients that are depressed and 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 are prepared to take worm eggs this is the same thing it's like if you've been working in a system that you know you understand and that works for you if someone down the road is shouting and saying down of the system we don't want you anymore it's also a little bit you know it's like well wait a second mm-hmm. system looks good to me mm-hmm. so i think it's it's you know winning people over just through the facts and understanding that actually yeah it's not that scary uh, women aren't trying to take all the male jobs um just trying to add really some diversity to 
I mean, we haven't solved all the problems. Mm-hmm. There are lots of problems that need solving. There's there's space for you know some difference um, in the way we've been doing things. So why don't we give that a go mm-hmm. and, and see what happens? Yeah, makes perfect sense to me. Um, and anyway, I, <laughs> well, I'm glad we I'm glad we touched on that. Um, yeah, so this has been great. I really really enjoyed this chat. It was a lot of fun. Um, maybe we can do it again in the future. And sure. you can let your husband know that I'd like to have him on as well. So that's, I'm yes, calling him out. Also a scientist. I'm calling him out <laughs> on the internet. So he, um, he is on Twitter and I'm sure he will, uh, once I tell him, he will write to you and let you know that he is more than willing to do this kind of thing. <laughs> so him and I do try and do public outreach. Um, and he's more on the parasite side and I'm more on the immune system mm-hmm. side. So, so we kind of complement each other quite well. Um, but, you know, doing these kinds of things is great. I hope that people have enjoyed our chat. Um, and, you know, anything that we can teach others or uh, discuss about science that gets people interested or captivates their imagination is something that I want to be a part of. So, well, I think you're... hopefully you get like a gazillion listeners. Yeah, I'm sure the once that <laughs> once your tapeworm story goes around, we'll, we'll get a few. So, yeah. So yeah. thank you again. No problem. There you have it. Uh, that was Dr. Constance Finney, who is professor uh, in the biological de- biological sciences department at the University of Calgary. Uh, again, many thanks to her for coming on and doing the show. Hopefully we can get her husband on here soon enough. He also works in the same field, also at the U of C. Has a bit more of a genetics bioinformatics uh, slant. And by a bit, I mean a lot. So it would be great to... Uh, hear from him i'm calling him out here on the internet um yeah many thanks again to constance hope you enjoyed it as always rate subscribe comment uh on the show does a lot for us follow us if you if you feel inclined at too bad for you on instagram and twitter i'm at bvampaired on instagram twitter uh and that's it uh, always many thanks to the freak motif for the music Lots of thanks to Sebastian Abood for the logo, and many thanks to you, the listener. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, y'all. Bye.